I'm Brian Vu. And I'm Adriana Buenviaje. And this is the Corsair Podcast. Hey, Adriana, can I tell you a story? Yeah, sure, Brian. Go ahead. In 1974, paleoanthropologist Daniel Johansson made a miraculous discovery through what most would refer to as sheer dumb luck. Dumb luck? Yeah, I'll get into that in a bit. So Johansson was in Ethiopia's Afar Triangle with a grad student, Tom Gray, hunting for early human evolutionary fossils. They weren't the first ones to excavate the site. Multiple teams of scientists had had their turn at this location before Johansson and Gray got theirs. After spending the day digging and dusting in the African heat, the team decided to leave the site. It was literally perfect timing because of the precisely angled sun in the sky. They spotted a glimmer in the distance. The curiosity of a scientist urged them to investigate this anomaly. As Johansson and Gray got closer, the glimmer became this twig sticking out of the ground. Once even closer, the twig took shape of a bone. Face to face with the bone, it resembled the arm of a human bone. Ecstatic with the finding, they started the careful extraction process. As they got lower, the arm became a shoulder, and the shoulder became a back, and that back led to the almost full skeletal remains of one of humankind's earliest ancestors, the Australopithecus afarensis. And guess what, Adriana? Ugh, Ryan, just tell me. Scientists like to party too. (laughs) (laughs) Johansson, Johansson, (laughs) Johansson and his team that night were celebrating with rounds of beer as the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band soundtracked the night. And as Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds played, the name almost chose itself. Lucy. Full skeletons or partial skeletons are the rarest things that we can find. It's much easier to go out and look for diamonds. They're much more common than it is to go and find an early human ancestor, especially one that's partially complete like Lucy ended up being. That was SMC anthropology professor Kiarn Brewster. The rarity of finding something like Lucy, and especially in the way Johansson did, was just pure luck. And if it wasn't for that, Lucy could still be in the ground today. Well, unless some lucky SOB happened to be carrying that four-leaf clover on another day. My my professor, my undergraduate professor, would refer to Don Johansson as a lucky SOB um, in a kind of very playful way in, in the respect that sometimes you just really need dumb luck on your side to make these really incredible discoveries. It's about being in the right place at the right time. This is a great transition into what I want to talk about next, Professor Brewster's right place in the right time moment. Did he discover a full skeleton too? I guess you can say that, but it's more like the discovery of his passion for fossilized human ancestral remains. How'd that happen? So back in Ireland, when Brewster was in high school, he had his sights set on criminology and forensics, but no universities in Ireland at the time offered those kinds of programs. Just to add some context, this was the 1990s and Brewster was only 18. Mercyhurst University in Pennsylvania was offering scholarships to Irish students because its founders were Irish. So when the opportunity appeared, Brewster hopped on it. I applied for a scholarship, I got it. I arrived to the United States 
and now I had to really rethink what I was going to study. So, like a lot of freshmen, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And during my first week on campus, I remember going to the cafeteria and sitting with a group of strangers. And one of the other students, who was an upperclassman, uh, started talking to me about his major, which was forensic anthropology. So it was anthropology, but with that focus, with that particular concentration. And while alarm bells went off in my head when I heard the word forensic, I wasn't really sure about anthropology, and I didn't know, quite honestly, a lot about anthropology. And he started to tell me about this program, which just sounded absolutely fascinating, because at Mercyhurst, this really hands-on program where the students really get involved and they get to work on actual cases, including homicide cases. They've worked on airplane crashes, and I was completely fascinated. It just sounded like the most incredible thing. So from there, I ran across campus, at least that's how I remember, is running across campus to my advisor and saying, I think I know what I want to do. I figured it out. I want to do anthropology. So I started enrolling in anthropology classes, physical anthropology, forensic anthropology, archaeology, cultural anthropology, and I was hooked. Now, I'm just curious, what does the discipline anthropology actually entail? Say, when you think of biology, you think of dissecting eyeballs and the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Or with chemistry, you think of elements and chemical reactions. So with anthropology, if this is just a GE requirement, what are the standout features of the class that students are going to walk away remembering for the rest of their lives? I think I'll let Brewster explain that. Um, I, I think ultimately we're all interested, at least on some level, where we come from, who we are and where we come from. Um, especially here in the United States, people are very aware of what their ancestry is. Since most people are not indigenous to North America, then your family come from somewhere. And in Anthropology, that's something that we explore. We explore ancestry, and sometimes we explore our very deep ancestry, going all the way back to the last common ancestor we share with chimpanzees and going even further back if we want. Interesting. People study anthropology for different reasons, but the common denominator is an interest in human ancestry. Other than that, it seems to be a pretty broad area of study you learn universal skills that can be applied to whatever you choose. Adriana, that was so well articulated, it almost felt scripted. <laughs> the skills that I teach my students, I think are very transferable skills. So even if students do not go beyond the level of an undergraduate degree, that they still have some training that's going to be transferable even if they're not going into a career specifically in physical or forensic anthropology. And so things like um, working in a team, writing reports, giving presentations, doing some independent research, all of these things are uh, skills that are transferable to, to other disciplines and other wor workplaces. Realistically, most students are just going to be taking Brewster's physical anthro class to satisfy the Agetsi science requirement. 
they're most likely not going to be switching majors to anthro afterwards, so it's important that students walk away with something, anything useful, like work applicable skills. In what ways has Professor Brewster applied those skills in his own work experience? Well, we didn't get to discuss how working in the team environment or doing presentations directly applied to his career. It's more like a tool belt of skills that everyone should be able to pull from. But on the subject of Brewster's career, he's worked on one really high-profile case. I was involved in that most people will be familiar with is the flight that went down in Somerset County in Pennsylvania during September 11th. Actually, can you read this passage from history.com? Fine. The fireball from the plane, which was carrying 7,000 gallons of fuel, scorched hundreds of acres of earth and set the surrounding trees ablaze for hours. The crash site near Shanksville was littered with the wreckage from the fragmented plane, with a debris field scattered nearly eight miles away from the initial point of impact. Despite the devastation, investigators were able to recover both the plane's flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder, or black box, which was found burrowed more than 20 feet below the ground. Though few human remains were recovered at the site, medical examiners were eventually able to positively identify the 40 passengers and crew members and four hijackers aboard Flight 93. Now, what's really impressive to me is Brewster was only a grad student at Mercyhurst when he was granted the opportunity to examine the site with his colleagues. And about a year after that event, um, students, including myself from Mercyhurst University, had the opportunity to go down and um, uh, explore where the plane had gone down and help recover additional human remains which were, were, were still there at that site at that time. According to Brewster, multiple FBI and disaster mortuary operational response teams had already gone through the site, and yet his teams still were able to uncover more remains. For me, one of the things that was really memorable is the scale of the crash scene because the plane itself was traveling really fast it was going at almost full full speed when impacted with the ground and as you can imagine that caused a lot of debris to be thrown up into the air and over a wide area um, what was particularly surprising for me is that a number of different teams had gone in and helped with the recovery and nonetheless we were still finding human remains a year afterwards after many teams had already been in there and it just gives you a sense of just the size and the scale and the devastation that was caused by this crash. That is morbidly fascinating but more morbid than fascinating. For myself death is a taboo subject and I think most people find the subject off-putting and uncomfortable. I just don't understand how someone can deal with being face-to-face -face with a disaster like that. You're right. Forensic anthropology really isn't for everyone. It takes strength to stare down death like this. But this science is important, and someone needs to do it. Without this work, could you imagine losing a loved one in this manner and never being able to have the closure of officially laying them to rest? Yeah, when... You think very deeply about it, it can, it can affect you emotionally. And 
when you're in the field, you try to be a good scientist and you try to, at least as best you can, to detach yourself from um, the emotional side of what's happening. Because in order to do a good job as a forensic anthropologist, you have to remain objective. You can't allow subjective feelings to get in the way or emotions. So you try and kind of step outside of yourself, so to speak. And, um, not let emotions be the overriding feeling because we really want to do a good job. We want to do a good job in order to to help out maybe the, the victim's family in some cases to, to, to help inform the investigators in, in the crime itself. And the best way you can do that is to, to be objective. So there seems to be a prevailing theme when it comes to science. There's this need to put aside your feelings, bias, and prejudice in the field. Objectivity is an essential part of any science. It's praised and encouraged in tons of other fields. Journalism, policymaking, business, and something Brewster emphasizes in his lessons, especially in his forensics anthro class. Towards the end of his semester, he holds mock investigations. Oh, oh God. What? Oh my god. What? What is going to happen? Is there news? There has been a murder. What? What? There's been a murder in Savannah. Students take control of a homicide scene and gather evidence. They then compile all their evidence and participate in a mock trial where Judge Brewster decides their fate. They have to secure the crime scene, they set up their own grid system, they take notes, they do all the documentation, they make the maps of the crime scene, they do all the photography, they collect all of the evidence, they label their evidence bags and make sure that they're secure. By looking at the human skeleton, can you figure out things like the age of an individual, the sex of an individual, their ancestry, how tall they were, approximately how much they weighed. Also, if there are signs of pathology or trauma, which are important to help and identify a person or identify the events leading to the death of that person, they have to present their results. So they give a presentation to myself and their colleagues in the classroom defend their methodology to me. So I pretend to be uh, a trial lawyer and I ask them some probing questions like uh, you would see in a real court case that would involve an expert witness or testimony. And so it gives students a real sense of the real world experience of a forensic anthropologist. These activities can sound fun, but coming from the man himself, the classes are also really challenging. Um, I have very high expectations of my students. My, my classes wouldn't be ranked as the easiest classes here in SMC. And the reason for this is because I feel very strongly that students leaving SMC, transfer students, should be prepared for the next step. And my role, I believe, is to prepare students for what a four-year college experience is going to be like. Things like the amount of work they're going to be expected to perform, reading material, time management skills, 
And so one of the things I tell my students on day one is that if you get a successful outcome in my class, whatever a successful outcome looks like for you, whether that's an A, B, or C, that you can hold your head up high and you can feel confident about transferring and moving on to the next step. I want students to leave with the feeling that they've had a real world experience and that they get excited about the subject matter. I have a lot of students take my classes because it fulfills certain requirements for transfer or lab credits, for instance. And they don't particularly have an interest in physical anthropology, but I will have students at the end of the semester come up to me and say, hey, you know, I'll be honest with you, at the beginning of the semester, I wasn't interested in the subject at all, and now I'm considering becoming an anthropology major as a result of taking this class. And that for me is, is, is really fulfilling. And it's, it's one of the reasons that I got into to teaching. I know the entire theme of this podcast is sort of centered around luck, like being at the right place in the right time. But thinking of the Lucy story, Brewster's anthro discovery, and compiling them both with the goals and expectations of the classes he teaches, it seems as though luck has such a minuscule impact. What you really need in those spontaneous moments are the right skills and techniques to get the job done. Sure, you can have the mozzarella, tomato sauce, flour, but what's the point in having all of that if you don't have the skills to turn it into a pizza? I'm your host, Brian Vu, and I couldn't have said it better myself. I'm your co-host, Adriana Buenviaje. This episode was produced and edited by me. Hey, you didn't do this by yourself. And Adriana helped with the writing and fact-checking. Thank you. A special thanks to Dr. Kirian Brewster for taking time out of his day to speak with us. And to Christiane Melendez for introducing us to Dr. Brewster. If you're a student who thinks a professor deserves to be featured on the show, or a professor that would like to be featured on the show, Email Brian at CorsairPodcast at gmail.com. This is the Corsair Podcast, produced by and for students. Thanks for listening.